Hello and welcome to this very special edition of A Glass of Seawater. My name is Bavin Patel and this episode is very special because we're recording in front of a live audience. (laughs) New tech. Yeah, very new tech. (laughs) And the thing we're going to be talking about today is why is fusion always 30 years away? But before we get to that, let's just introduce who we are. So as I mentioned earlier, my name is Bavin Patel. I am a fusion PhD student. To my left, I've got Phil. Hi there. Uh, to my right, I've got Will. Hello. And on the far end, we've got Andrew. Don't say it with regret. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. Yeah. And as I mentioned, we are all uh, fusion PhD students studying slightly different fields, all working towards the same eventual goal. So I want to focus on where this question came from. So people have always been saying fusion is 30 years away. Bit of a spillage in the back. <laughs> uh, fusion is always 30 years away. So why, where did this misconception or where did this question come from? Well, I think the first time I can find it ever being said was at the Atoms for Peace conference in 1958, I think, which is not the answer we rehearsed, but I remembered that we looked this up. <laughs> anyway, so there was, even then there was somebody saying, uh, you know, making a speech in which he said, let's be very careful about this, but I think we can do it. And increasingly over the past week, because we've had a bit of press this week for various reasons, um, fusion, the fusion community. Reading it, I think I've come to the opinion that actually we should say things like that more often because that was a time of doing impossible things and trying to smash innovation barriers and advancing that frontier. And that was an ambitious goal and we need more of that. But back then is when it comes from. Andrew Malcolm-Neal, 2018. (laughs) Editorializing already. I mean, that's absolutely true. But then it's also a valid question to ask why indeed it does always seem to be, you know, in the future that Ah. we have this thing. Um, and what we want to highlight in this uh, episode, I think, is that we've made an awful lot of progress along the way. So we've had a lot of success. When these predictions were originally made, the field was at quite a... It was in its infancy. It was in its infancy, yes. Yeah, exactly. So now we've, we've sort of developed a bit. We're a bit more confident about where we're going. Mm. So arguably our predictions for when Fusion comes online might be a little more reliable. I mean, before, there's, there's there's so much stuff we've uncovered about Fusion since as well. But at the start, it was just like, we've discovered this uh, thing called Fusion. You know, Einstein said that there's this energy mass equivalency, E equals MC squared. And we found out that Fusion happens in the sun. And then, great, there's this idea that we can release a bunch of energy from burning fuel. And we figured out how hot we need to get the thing. And we figured out, figured right, let's go for it. Let's get our uh, plasma to 150 million degrees. Fusion will happen, and that'll be fine. And then we got our plasma to 150 million degrees and then all sorts of problems started. Yeah. <laughs> problems to solve. Yeah. But I think the main thing is we have to remember is saying, oh, why is fusion always 30 years away? It implies that we've made no progress. And I want to really, really go to the point that we have made progress. So I think there's a better question we should be asking. What do we need to do to get fusion on the grid? What do we need to do to get fusion energy as an actual thing in our lives? And what's stopping us from doing that now? So what is the obstacle from us and fusion energy? Well, there are a lot. Yes. There are a lot of questions that were thrown up after this period. So there was this this sort of rush of everybody building a reactor back in way back when, 70s, not that far back. And when we did that, well, I'll speak for the MCF side. Yeah. I'll speak for the magnetic side. So remember, Um, just keeping your plasma contained with magnets. Yeah. Um, So we, we each had our own set of problems, some that overlapped, some that didn't. Um, our thing, I think our two big ones are instabilities and turbulence. 
yeah. were the ones that we discovered. And that really only came, we only knew about those because we started to make really big reactors confining a lot of fuel. Uh, and the better we got at that, the more nature pushed back against us. And so for my work, I look at the turbulence side. I look at preventing the transport problem, hmm. um, which is if we think about fusion as trying to keep a fuel hot enough for long enough in the middle, turns out turbulence is really good at just mixing all that round and in particular taking it from the middle and throwing it out the side. So the, the turbulence Andrew is mentioning is the same turbulence that you experience on a plane. Just all these different fluids flowing around and doing really weird chaotic behavior. Oh yeah. It's the exact same thing that you feel on a plane. It's the same thing you get inside a, a tokamak. So Which this MCF reactor. Explaining my project a lot easier to people because I can just say turbulence and people go, oh yeah, when I was on that flight. Because yeah. everyone else is, I have six equations that yeah. you didn't do A-level to understand. Yeah. So, and, and the other thing Andrew mentioned was instabilities. So if you imagine we've got this donut of plasma, so you, as you can see on the board or and to our listeners in the show notes, we're trying to keep this donut of plasma in that shape. But the problem is, if you imagine you've got a balloon and you're trying to push it down together, if you pinch it on one side, it's going to balloon out on the other side. If you pinch it on the other side, it's going to balloon out the other way. So it's the same sort of thing. We're basically trying to hold this plasma in place and we're holding it with different mechanisms, but the, the plasma is just trying to balloon out, trying to squeeze its way out. So any, any way it can deform and relax into an easier state, it's going to try and do that. Other experiments you can do at home include just twisting a tea towel and just twist and twist and twist and eventually something will happen that's weird and will kick out. That's another analogy to an instability we have in the Tokamax. It's like say, I think it's really nice that we're actually going to use our hand gestures now, not just having to show it to each other. That's actually mm. people <laughs> yeah. see the hand gestures. Like in a normal recording, the hands are just all over the place. And none of the listeners ever know. So what about some of the problems in, uh, in ICF? So when you're trying to squish the fuel with lasers? I think many so. of the problems are very, very similar in a sort of very broad sense. Again, we, the, the two main problems I think we probably have is the uniformity of your implosion. So you're shooting lasers from all sides um, onto your capsule. You want this capsule to implode uniformly so that it can get as dense and hot as possible. If you shoot your lasers at the wrong time or in the wrong place, then, it might, then your fuel capsule is going to sort of pancake or balloon or mm. squidge in a, some kind of non-uniform manner, which... Uh, which basically prevents you from getting any fusion yield at all. Um, another major problem we, we discovered was comes under this rather unfortunate umbrella term of instability, uh, which is on a sort of microscopic scale. Uh, your your, your um, imploding fuel essentially starts to form tiny little uh, mushroom clouds or it starts to mix in a, in a manner which cools your... your your hot spot, essentially. Yeah, and for fusion, you want it to be incredibly hot and you want to sustain that heat. Exactly, yeah. I think also, let's not forget the stuff that we over overcome earlier because, you know, that this is all these are all problems that we have now. But before, I mean, when the concept of ICF was first introduced uh, in the late 50s, that we didn't even have the technology to uh, drive such reaction. They came up with this concept, wouldn't it be great if we had this fusion fuel? We know how fusion works. So we need uh, one way we could do it is basically heat up the outside so it blows off loads of material and compresses itself, what we didn't have was something that could heat up the outside really quickly. A few years later, the laser comes along. Finally, we have a way of actually driving for the um, driving the reaction of the ICF side. So we start building lasers. We start scaling everything up. And then we realize that when you shoot these materials with lasers, they make beams of electrons, which cause all sorts of transport problems, but become useful later on. So there's all these steps into just gradually scaling things up. And even just getting to the point where 
let's not forget that ICF reactions and MCF tokamaks actually make fusion happen. You know, we've got to the step where fusion happens and every time we build the next machine, more fusion happens than last time. So yes, we've got these problems now that you guys just mentioned, the instability ones, but we've also come a long way to get to that point and actually just getting any fusion at all. Right. So one thing that might be useful is to set a timeline for this discovery in people's heads, which is to say the the concept of, of one of these magnetic donut machines was come up with really only in, in the in the 50s. The proof, the mathematical proof it would work, that was work done um, again in Russia, as Ksenia Razumova, who knows her. That was late 60s. The proof of concept was late 60s. And then 70s and 80s was build as many as you can. 80s was, ooh, turns out something's happening here. And then only around the 2000s did we start to get a good physics base for what was actually going wrong. So it's not like a really old problem that we've been you know, butting our heads up against for ages. It's actually relatively new mm. science. And also we're, we're doing fusion all the time. Uh, we're actually in every, almost every single reaction uh, or experiment that we do, we are producing a lot of energy from these fusion processes. The problem or the challenge now is that we want to get more energy out than we put in. And that turns out to be a very, very difficult problem. And another issue that people often forget to think about is the materials you use to build your reactor. I mean, you're essentially popping the sun inside of a box. You can't just use cardboard. It's not going to work. <laughs> like, you have to... You have to we haven't really... tried, to be fair. <laughs> you know what? Could, no one has actually do. tried. Yeah. It could be. You Maybe could cardboard. line it with cardboard. It's uh, brightest have... minds, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Because you've got you've got something that's incredibly hot, and it's also when you ha when you have this fusion reaction, it re uh, releases a neutral particle called a neutron, and that neutron is going to hit things and it's going to change things. So you have to have something that's resistant to the, these changes. These the official word is transmutations, because you can change elements. Or alchemy, as I like to say. Yeah, I mean fusion is quite literally alchemy. Well, modern fusion scientists, modern day alchemists. Yeah. Newton would have absolutely loved us. Yeah, Newton was also an alchemist, but probably in a slightly different way. Probably not. I don't think any of us are alchemists. I think it's well, I mean, unhelpful. Okay. I, 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 I personally have not done any fusion. Like, I have not caused a single fusion because reaction to you're happen. not very good at what you do. <laughs> don't He's tell. a theorist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I like, just, just run nice. computers and just hope for the best. And I want, I want pretty numbers on my screen is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, it's good. Very nice graphs. Yeah, yeah pretty graphs. You've got graphs. more graphs than I have. But yeah, so you have these materials... And you need to build materials that, are, that can withstand these incredibly high heats, these materials that can withstand these neutrons. So there's a lot of research that's actually gone into it. And you have like material scientists who just do essentially the weirdest but amazing things. I kind of like really love material scientists. But I think something that people don't realize is you can only figure out some of the problems in a field or in a thing that you're building until, until you've built it. Like if you're building a house... If you're building a house for the first time, you don't really know what the problems are. You don't know if you're trying to put the, the wood up. Oh, you, okay, I need to make sure it doesn't bow. I need to make sure everything's solid. You, a lot of problems you're going to find as you're building the reactor, as you start doing experiments. So you won't figure out some of the problems until you start actually doing it. And I think that's something that we really need to think about and remember. Uh, and I think one other thing that uh, we should probably mention is uh, resources and how uh, resources have always kind of been an issue for fusion. We were talking earlier today about this idea that when we're given a limited amount of resources, you have to put a lot of time and effort into finding the correct way of doing the right thing. So potentially lots of different paths we can go down. But if you're only given a certain amount of money to follow one of those paths, you have to do lots of research into figuring out which way is the way to go. You know, when science works best is when you can work through trial and error. If you just 
And understandably, we can't use all the money in the world. Fusion's an expensive uh, process to get working. But if we had more, uh, more money to go down more routes, you can find mistakes faster, and mistakes are the fastest way to learn. Imagine you have to bake a cake for the queen, but you only have one shot to do it, and you've never made a cake before. Ingredients for one cake. In- you only There's have no the ingredients test. for one cake. You- you're going to put a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of research to make sure that you build, you bake, <laughs> <laughs> you bake the most amazing cake that you can possibly bake. Because yeah, you want I, the I queen to be happy. And it's a similar sort of thing. Like if, if you had a not enough ingredients, you could trial and error. You could try maybe a fruit cake, a Victoria sponge, a black forest. You could try a bunch of different cakes. And you could see, oh, this is a good cake. I can make this cake. Oh, I can't make that cake. But if you've only got ingredients for one cake, you haven't got a choice. You just have to build that one cake and just try and do it to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. Bake the cake. You don't build cakes. Do you know any other kinds of cake you'd like to name check here? Or just... uh, bake or tarts are a type of cake. Carrot. Oh, really? Carrot cake. Okay. That was rhetorical. You don't have to. Okay, fine. Yay. In spite of all of the problems that we've all faced, we've actually made a lot of progress. So if you look to the screen, or if you look uh, in the show notes to our listeners, is everyone familiar with Moore's Law? No. You surround yourself with physicists too much. (laughs) Moore's Law, that thing we always talk about. So Moore's Law tells us about how quickly... Uh, computing improves more specifically it's the number of transistors you can fit in a certain amount of area on a microchip every two years your effective computing power just doubles so you can see on the graph the green line of the oh wait no which one is it the red line is moore's law and fusion you can kind of measure fusion with something called the lawson criteria which is essentially the density of your plasma times the temperature of your plasma times how long you're holding it there for so confinement time and you multiply all of these three together, and if you get above a certain number, you have fusion, and everyone's happy. And you can see, over the last 30-odd years, well, from 1970 to 2005, our progress has actually been much, much greater than computing, much, much greater than particle accelerators. Particle accelerators are shown below in the, on the green line. It's something you have to remember, is that we've actually made a significant amount of progress. Like, even with the lack of resources, even with all the hurdles that we've come across, we've made huge amounts of progress. I think we should talk about some of the other major milestones that Fusion has actually achieved as a field. So MCF we can start off with. Yeah, okay. So we talked, uh, outlined the history of MCF and its theoretical stuff earlier. The experimental research that our big gains there are mostly this graph, right? So say for the, the, the 30 years thing, it was mostly us driving as hard as we can, new tokamaks, bigger ones, more powerful ones, better magnets for all of that time. Uh, and so you can see there, well, I think Jet, I think the top ones there are JC60SA because Jet still has the world record for the most powerful, uh, well, best fusion power out experiment. Jet's the European big machine. Um, uh, yeah, so Jet is actually based in Oxford. Yeah. Uh, down here in London. Oh, not in London, in England. Yeah, close. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what they did was they put in uh, 25 megawatts of energy. And from that, they got out 16 megawatts of energy, of fusion energy. So which is, we have. Which is good. Which is, which, is surpri- which is really, really good. It's not break even. So it's not, we're not getting as much energy out as we are in. But it's a, it's a yeah. massive, significant thing that we've actually achieved. Uh, we've also got uh, records for how long tokamaks have run. So there's something called Torre Supra. Uh, there used to be something called Torre Supra. There used to be, there used to be a tokamak called Torre Supra. 
And that was able to sustain a plasma for 6 minutes and 30 seconds, producing yeah. 20 megawatts at the time. High-performing plasma. It's a, a high perform. So this is, you know, pushing the limits of both yeah. what the plasma can do and how long it can run for. It didn't go anywhere. It's still there. It's just got a new name. Yeah, it's now it's called, called West. West. In contrast to China's tokamak, which is called East. Yeah. East versus West. Very Thinking. Nice. But ICS has also actually got quite a lot of um, achievements as well. You take this one, Phil. Well, so the trajectory of uh, ICF sort of quite closely follows the improvements we've made to lasers, since lasers are the thing we've uh, come to use to drive our capsule compression. So lasers first came about in the 60s, uh, and they started out very small, just like sort of laser pointer sort of strength. Um, And then we moved up to kilowatts, and then up to, good lord, petawatts. And basically, the stronger our yeah. lasers got, uh, the more effective they were at producing our, our fusion reaction. How so much is a petawatt, Phil? The scale goes, kilo, mega, giga, tera, peta. Yeah, so, so, are... so if you'll give me a moment, I'll just explain roughly what a petawatt Sorry. might equate to. So this is a unit of power, and if you imagine the amount of energy that is hitting the Earth every second, and then you sort of take take this power and focus it down to about the size of, of a pinhead, uh, that is roughly a petawatt. So that is what we're doing almost routinely now on some of our experiments, and it's very yeah, exciting. Yeah, I mean, the sun's got nothing on us, basically. <laughs> next, next step is above petawatt as well. It certainly is, yeah. 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 Exawatt. <laughs> not, not quite exawatt, but... Close, More. 10, 10, pet- 10 petawatts. <laughs> so just, just to be clear, like, you've got kilo, mega, giga, they're all like a thousand, a factor of a thousand apart. So mm-hmm. petas what ten to the fifteen? Yeah, it's a, it's a very very big <laughs> number. Don't work in such high values oh. in MCF. Oh, it's a lot though. No, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Goodness, we have huge. I mean, de- they're all mind-boggling. So yeah, every, everything we do is amazing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> as as one serious major milestone within inertial confinement fusion, we have actually achieved scientific break-even, or we did so in 2013 on. Uh, the American facility, which is called the National Ignition Facility. And this isn't this isn't like we got out the same energy as we put in. That would be crazy. But, but it's, amazing. It's, it, this, is, this is still nonetheless very impressive. And it's the amount of energy that we actually put onto our fuel capsule uh, was equaled by the amount of fusion energy that we released. Yeah. So this this is this is scientific break even. It's it's definitely not equivalent to a commercial so the the term would be an engineering break even when all of the energy that you you take from you know setting up all of your different systems inside your reactor all of that energy is the same as the energy out from your reactor mm. so at the moment it takes an enormous amount of electrical energy to power up our capacitor banks which we then fire to form our laser and at the moment i think the national ignition facility operates at less than 1% efficiency which sounds yeah, terrible yeah it's the difference between you know so fusion power, as we talk about it, is we're getting quite good at the physics. Um, we can make plenty of fusion happen. But there's a, there's a, a long way to go between that and I can boil a kettle to make electricity mm. or to use, use that electricity to boil a kettle. And in MCF, there are other things that we figured out just by building and having reactors to test on. We have something called H-mode. So H-mode is something that's called high confinement mode. And we just found out we just found it out by just doing experiments. We found that as you start putting more and more power into your into your tokamak, eventually you get something called an edge transport barrier. So at the edge of your donut, all of the particles kind of get blocked by a wall. 
And this, this, and what this is good because we're not trying to contain our plasma. So this H mode we just found by doing the experiment, and that's something that I think is really key. Just do more experiments, and you'll well, find yeah, out so more. So it was doubled, more or less doubled the fusion power of um, those plasmas. But the only way you could get there was you had to develop a whole bunch of heating technologies. Yeah. So that you were able to put that power and cross the threshold and go, oh, that's different. So we've developed heating technologies such as microwaves, so the same as same as a microwave you use to heat up your pizza oven, or your microwave pizza, not a pizza oven. Could be a pizza oven. You could put a pizza oven house, inside of a mother. Mi- I'm sure someone's really. done that. It's, it's like a YouTube channel. Yeah. Will it microwave? Anyway, something you put your microwave meal inside of a microwave. Uh, that's the same sort of thing. And we've also got something called uh, neutral beam injection, where you literally fire neutral particles into your plasma, and that and these are really high energy, and you, they kind of just give energy and momentum into your plasma. I like to think of it. They like spin the plasma around the donor. Yeah, you've got like, your plasma going around, and then your neutral beam injector is basically just yeah going like that. It's like you're firing a machine gun of particles into your tokamak. It's a very sophisticated technique. Yeah, it's <laughs> definitely like you know millions of pounds and thousands of hours have gone into it. It's way more complicated than a machine gun, but it's a pretty picture. It's it's a picture. And microwaves. Yeah, microwaves. Yeah. And these micro <laughs> these microwaves can be uh Ding. Sorry. <laughs> He's very easily distracted. <laughs> yeah, slightly. And these this microwave ad- this advancement in microwave technology is also gonna help other things like telecommunications. So once we once we're able to build things that can generate better microwaves, we can we're able to communicate better over long distances. Yeah. And it already does. There's already spin off companies growing out of the advancements in it's slightly counterintuitive that a heating technology gives you a telecoms company, but um, there it is. You know, it's all EM radiation waves. So yeah, it's how we communicate. And we, and we, well, uh, yeah. we've uh, we've got our spin-offs in ICF as well. So obviously, ICF's been a massive driver for uh, updating laser technology and increasing laser power. Uh, I very briefly mentioned earlier that uh, some laser uh, plasma interactions give us hot electron beams. Uh, so this fact that lasers can create streams of particles has opened up a whole new area of research. Uh, we now know of a bunch of different acceleration mechanisms uh, that can produce beams of particles. So just like uh, a CERN, CERN, the massive uh, particle acceleration Geneva, 27 kilometers in circumference, um, the electric fields that we generate in laser plasma interactions are a lot stronger over small distances. So it's a potential way to really compact down that technology. So if you, for instance, you want to use uh, your particle beams for medical applications, this is now potentially a way of compacting down this technology and being able to fit it into a a hospital or something like that. So that's one aspect that's opened up. A few others. Yeah, there's also... um laboratory astrophysics so this is another sort of scientific application but if you want to learn about processes that are happening in stars like millions of light years away or in galaxies or really exotic objects like maybe even black holes or or strange shocks um, and supernovae exploding stars uh, we really can't really deal with that uh, except theoretically or at least we couldn't until we realized that uh, you can you can do experiments with very high intensity lasers, um, and as long as you scale uh, certain parameters correctly, like your, the size of your system and the time scales you're working on and the magnetic fields you're creating, you can effectively reproduce in your laboratory those processes which are happening 
millions of light years away. Um, so that's another very interesting, very yeah. fertile mm -hmm. field the, of the research. Next, the next step of lasers we're going to uh, hopefully develop are going to be so powerful when you focus them down, they're actually going to be able to rip apart the fabric of space. So we're going to be yes. able to use lasers to <laughs> investigate fundamental uh, properties of the universe just by shooting them down into a small area. Mm. Yes. So much energy in such small areas is just going to completely mess things up. There's the bit of my degree that was philosophy that's quite angsty about what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what that means, but it sounds very suspicious. Um, I was just going to say, uh, building on Phil's point, that I think if we're talking about things that we learned doing fusion, it's well worth just remembering that actually there's a quite intimate relationship between fusion research and plasma physics research. Plasma physics being, you know, Brian Cox is a particle physicist. There are different species of physicists, basically. Um, we do plasma physics because that's the state of matter we work with. And so, yeah, just advancing what we know about that, be it for space, you know, astrophysics stuff, be it for what, whatever. Well, it's all on the wall over here. So low temperature guys um, or, yeah, just hot fusion plasmas. Those are all things we didn't know before. They advance the scientific frontier and one day, I'm sure, will be useful for something. But this is to, how we know. It's, it's hard to predict research. what things are going to be useful for, but they generally tend to be end up used somehow, somewhere. Yeah, we find uh, I mean, the Apollo program is always trotted out as a good example of how you can get, you know, all sorts of different scientific applications from an unexpected avenue. And like financially, it worked out in, in a positive way as well. For every dollar you put into the Apollo mission, you got $14 out from industry. But we're here to save the world. We're yeah, we don't care about the money. Financial <laughs> we care about the money, but not really. We'll shake a bucket. Don't care, yeah. We care about the physics. We care about the physics. Yeah. And, and the energy. Yeah. A little bit of the money. Well, I, a little I'll, bit more money. I want to be able to feed my children and stuff. Didn't know you had children. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I do in my own time is my business. <laughs> Raising a family is a very wholesome yeah. version of that phrase. Physics yeah. by day, dad by night. It's great. Aww. Shouldn't uh, you be a dad by day? No. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Very absent. Nine to five, not there. Uh, <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> it's a modern world. Yeah. Uh, we've also advanced um, computing. Uh, oh. Whenever In MCF, when you're trying to simulate your plasma, you've got 10 to the 23 particles moving over tens of seconds or hundreds of seconds, and you need to be able to basically track all of these different particles. So in order to do that, we've come up with new simulation codes. We've pushed the, the boundaries of computing to push what computers are able to do, just so that we can actually yeah. recreate what's going on inside and of the plasma. Was, that's trying to do very, very, very small things on a very long space and time scale, which is just stupid. But yeah. uh, it turns out we have to. So... We've yeah pushed push computing, push magnets. The other one, yeah, um, superconducting well, magnets. There was, there, was, there was there's two things there. So there's magnets did really well, and we remember to check at some point and import that technology. But now we are the developers of the biggest superconducting magnet systems in the world. And so this has uh, direct consequences. Uh, this has direct consequences for medical uh, stuff as well, such as MRIs. MRIs use superconducting magnets. So if you have better superconducting magnets, you can obviously have much better MRIs. So there's all these kind of feedback things between... And one of the things I love about fusion is how many different bits of physics, bits of tech we're borrowing from and giving back to and it all comes and goes. And Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, give and take and knowledge transfer in the jargon. Robots as well. Robots. Robots yeah. are good. So well, in, for, yeah, in, your, in these reactors, they're generally uh, not environments that people can go in. So you have to de uh, develop remote maintenance uh, techniques. So you have to be able to build robots that can go inside and 
change that panel and unscrew it and screw it back in. Yeah, this is so for our listeners. I'm gesturing weird things with my hands, trying to You're reach trying for to things. Go round the donut with your arm, and it yeah. doesn't work because the hinge is not the right one. <laughs> but the point is, you get you. <laughs> We've benefited a lot in terms of robotics because we've had to uh, develop these things in order to do what we need to do. Yeah. And then it turns out that we're now really, really good at robotics down in the U- particularly in the UK as a specialism. Um, so the European Space Agency come to us for stuff and it turns out it's really useful for autonomous vehicles, right? Driverless cars. It uses a very similar set of code. So now we're just really good at that on the Fusion Research site, which is a, another slightly counterintuitive spin-off. Basically, two steps away from Skynet. <laughs> two. Two. Okay. What's number one and what's number two? Uh, oh, well, don't twist them. <laughs> number one is, I guess, AI technology. Number two is collapse of humans. Okay. Number That's one. Pretty we're, close. we're pretty Sounds close to number one. Pretty <laughs> soon. The main take-home point from all of this is that the question. Why is fusion energy always 30 years away? In my opinion, I think it's the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, what do we need to do to get fusion on the grid? And we mentioned the different problems that we face, instabilities and turbulence, and for uh, for the ICF people, uh, the lasers that they uh, use to drive uh, their reactions. So these are the problems that we need to face and that we need to overcome. And the way that we're going to do it is by building more reactors. So we have the ITER project that's uh, being built in the south of France. That's, as we mentioned earlier, a collaboration of seven different major countries, institutions, and together all pushing this boundary. Thomas Edison designed the light bulb, the light bulb that we use basically every day. Light bulbs, you see them left, right, and center. They're in this room right now. Not these ones. Yeah, these are not Thomas Edison light bulbs. Sorry, that's... I've ruined your point. These are, yeah... Keep going. It, it's a, it's a good <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's just yeah, not right. Yeah. So the, the point is that Thomas Edison had to go through a hundred different d- designs of light bulbs. He found a hundred different ways to not make a light bulb before he actually built a light bulb that works. And it's a similar sort of thing. We need to start building more and more reactors, testing different, different things. And eventually we'll find the correct way to do fusion, whether that be MCF, ICF, or some new thing that one of you guys might figure out. Who knows? QCF. What's the cue? No idea. Cute. We don't know yet. Quiet. <laughs> confinement. We'll do the research. So I think, yeah, the main thing we have to remember is the question I think needs to be rephrased that what do we need to do as as a community, as a global community to get fusion on the grid? Yes, but people are still going to ask us when do we think fusion is actually going to happen. So Phil, when do you, when do you think fusion is going to happen? I think, I think we're going to have demonstrated commercial fusion probably towards the end of this century so probably maybe like 2070 or something and then we're not going to see this forming a substantial part of our energy input probably until right at the end of this century Baff. well i think i think I, I agree with phil i think it's around that sort of timeline and i think we can say that with a lot more confi- uh, confidence because we're able to, we know a lot more than we did before we've built a lot more reactors we know how they work iter is uh, a small step up from our current reactor so we have a good idea of what we expect it to do and iter we it should get 500 megawatts out just from putting 50 megawatts in and we're planning to run that for 500 seconds so i think the current roadmap is looks pretty promising i think we've got something in the horizon 
towards the end of the century, I think we can actually get fusion on the grid. And that isn't even taking into account all the strange and wonderful offshoots from like private companies and universities that are being funded separately. All these weird and wacky possibilities that could make it happen even faster. Like hitting it with a hammer. Well, yeah, exactly. Several hammers. So General Fusion is a private <laughs> company that's idea is literally just smack some fuel or some hammers and see what happens. I think they call them pistons. No, they call them hammers. Do they? Yeah, okay. yeah, they call them hammers. Yeah. They are pistons. Right. But I think hammers is just like a nice simple picture. Like, why don't we try that? Just whack it as hard as you can. Can't hammer. believe we didn't think of that. Yeah. But I mean, the sign that private companies, not like governments, people just using their own money are deciding to invest in Fusion. I think that's a very promising thing. Because it, generally it that's going to... Not- completely risky anymore yeah there's actual potential like it could actually happen and the more confident people become the more willing they are to invest and this could all snowball into some wonderful fusion snowball i suppose Uh. so back to answering the question how far away is fusion i like to avoid it slightly and just remind everyone that we have fusion right now every time we turn on the machine fusion happens so that's it yeah fusion's there one more (laughs) andrew i think it's a uh, silly question because I think if you're in if you're in a development stage of a project of an R&D project it makes sense to put a timeline on it but we're not we're in a, we're in a research phase still so there's some somebody should worry about it but I'm I think as long as we're here we should say talk in terms of the challenges to be overcome and then if you want to put a date on it you'll you'll be proven wrong anyway but we should do it because it's a big complicated interesting problem to solve and that's an inspirational thing for scientists to try and do and then we can work out the rest afterwards what a nice note to end on well uh thank you for listening to this glass of seawater did you remember to turn the mics on uh <laughs> god do you guys have another 45 minutes <laughs> So the question is, uh, how many of the challenges we have left are scientific questions? And then when do we hit an engineering frontier and we need to solve those questions too? I'm looking at you, Bav. So I think we're beginning to get to the point where the engineering problems are becoming more numerous than the scientific problems. We have solutions, we have ways to deal with ma- some of the major scientific problems. So one example are ELMS. Uh, ELMS uh, arise from H-modes, uh, where H-mode is the, where we have that high confinement mode. So ELMS are kind of when your plasma just spits out a bunch of plasma, attacks the wall, and it's all crazy. And we've, we've found ways to actually deal with that. But the, the other stuff, such as superconducting magnets and materials and the other kind of things that we need to deal with, they are becoming more of a problem that we need to actually start attacking now. A lot of the physics problems we have solutions for, we have ways to mitigate these different issues. So now it's more becoming, we need the equipment that can handle these conditions. So I, I think, think we're at a turning point. I think, yeah, that's, that's true for MCF, but with ICF, one of the more exciting aspects of our field is that there's loads of physics still to be understood. <laughs> MCF, MCF you've, you've got it close, and your physics, uh, the physics you're coming close to understand, but uh, MC, I, uh, sorry, ICF, there's loads of physics that we still need to look into. The uh, sort of energies that I'm looking at, uh, in my PhD, there's been very little work into so far. 
we looked at a little less uh, energy and a little more energy, but in between, we just really don't know what happens. And the physics changes so much, even when you take steps of 10 times more powerful, the physics completely changes in ICF when you go into different regimes. So loads of work to be done for us. And then hopefully by the time we've got it done, you'll, you'll figure out all the engineering problems. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, but by way of context, I think it, it seems to me that in the physics side, speaking as a magnetics person, on the physics side, we're sort of feeling our way to the right answer reasonably well. We're kind of getting nearer and nearer. There are still a lot of questions about how you handle those temperatures. Is the immediate engineering challenge, though, again, you seem reasonably close to having that. But there's, once you've done that, that's the sort of fusion part of it. Then there's the, right, how am I going to capture this energy and turn it into something useful? And that's, I think, a lot less understood and developed. So that engineering challenge is certainly still out there to be. I mean, in order to build the engineering components, you need a, a reactor. And in, so once we start building more reactors, I think we're going to start having the solutions for these engineering problems. ETA's already got plans to have components to test yeah. those, um, those aspects as well. Yeah, so. ETA definitely is going to start solving some of the engineering yeah. problems. I mean, when MCF solves that problem, it'll become an awful lot easier for ICF, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. uh, although the trouble is that ICF has certain... To, to do with the fact that you are pulsing your your uh, reaction by imploding lots of small pellets uh unfortunately that's quite a different regime uh the the material you make your your reactor wall out of uh has to be has to withstand very different conditions in some ways much more intense than for mcf so we, we also just don't know if that will change things at all we have no no well yes yeah, so so we we actually cannot even test uh the, these conditions or whether there are any steels or tungstens or strange exotic metals that could actually um, uh, withstand these sorts of uh, neutrons. Uh, so we, we have very limited time. We're trying oh. to get through some more <laughs> questions. Right, but uh, <laughs> if you, we, we have a little reception afterwards. So if you have any more questions, please come ask us. Uh, are there any other questions? So oh, yeah. the question was, if we have a super impenetrable box where we have our plasma, how do we get the energy out? And there, there are actually, this is actually a big area of research. How do we get the energy out? So when you have your fusion reaction, you've got, you get two particles. You get your alpha nucleus, so your helium nucleus, and you get your neutron. So the alpha is charged, so it stays within the plasma, and it, it's used to heat the plasma. The other thing is the neutron, and that's how we get the energy out. So this neutron fires straight out, and because it's not charged, it just goes through whatever. It just doesn't care about the electric field. It doesn't care about the plasma. It just flies straight out. So what we end up doing is we design something called uh, blankets around the edge of our tokamak. And what this does is this will capture our neutron and it will heat that up or it will cause a reaction. And from that, from that heat, we can just work a steam turbine like normal. So that heat can go drive, uh, heat up some water, get some steam, and that steam will then generate a t uh, turn a turbine. So it's the same sort of thing. We just have these blankets on the outside that capture that neutron and then heat it up and then same as always. So that's the fun thing. We're basically using sort of pseudo-Victorian methods of getting the energy out. We've got this amazing like star in a box, but essentially we're still just boiling a kettle on the outside is what the basic mechanism is. Uh, any other questions? Yes. So the question is, why are we fusing lighter nuclei rather than heavier nuclei with a startup in America actually using carbon compared to us where we use isotopes of hydrogen? So would anyone like to take this question? I could, I could give it a go. Uh, so I have no idea. I don't know if any of you three do about the uh, carbon nuclei process, but um, 
if you look at, we call, uh, we call it a binding energy curve, which essentially uh, is a curve which lets you know how much energy you get out when you go from step to step he uh, heavier nuclei. So if you imagine, uh, and we're good to have this graph, uh, but basically the steepest part of the curve is right down at the bottom of the um, weights of nuclei. So hydrogen to helium is the steepest part of the curve, and that essentially means you've got the highest energy jump there. As soon as you go up to heavier elements, the next step gets uh, shallower and shallower. So this is actually one of the... <laughs> Kate, oh, this is going to be hard for listeners, but Kate is frantically drawing the graph. In, in the show notes, we'll include an image of binding energies. Yeah, we'll do that. So the, the steep bit is that uh, part to the left, uh, where your uh, hydrogen, and that's where the steepest part of your curve is, so that's where you're going to get the most energy out. And as you go further along that curve, it flattens out, and you get less energy for each step. Uh, the other side where it starts to dip, uh, that's actually when you're now looking at the fission process. So you can already see that that, that part of the curve is uh, shallower. And this is one of the advantages that fusion potentially has over fission, although yeah. that's not going too far. It's just, yeah, steepness of the curve is what you want, and the steepest part is at the lightest elements. Which is, which is fascinating if you're a nuclear physicist, but we're plasma physicists, that's so true. that's for one. We want to do 10 to the power of 20, so one, 20 zeros um, of them. In which case you have... Uh, to think about the likelihood of a reaction happening when they collide, when whatever fuel you want to use collides. Lighter ones, um, certainly when we're talking about hydrogen, they will have, the, there is a much better chance of a reaction for a lower temperature for a lighter element. So there are other fuels we could use. Certainly there's no pr in principle reason you can fuse anything that's less heavy than iron and get energy out. But there are reasons we are starting where we are. Uh, which are mostly it's a lot easier and we want to do it base case first and then we'll we'll find a, an optimal case after that. I mean, essentially the lighter nuclei repel themselves, repel each other slightly less than if you have lots of charged particles in your heavier nuclei. So you should be able to get a substantial amount of nuclear reaction <laughs> uh, at a lower temperature and density than you otherwise would. I would like to point out one thing. The diagram Kate drew on the board is just absolutely pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> What's that peak doing? I was doing it. Oh, that's iron, and then it drops and then the goes back up. Ones. Oh, if you're going to be pressure. that precise, you should do the bit where helium drops down. This is wrapping up. Yeah, yeah okay. Think, should we, uh, but yeah, thanks everyone for listening. See you after. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Thank you, everyone. Thank Thanks you. A lot. Don't delete the recording. Don't delete the recording. That was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learned so much. Same. Even though I may have not been in it. Same. So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast, probably more than anything else. And tell all your friends and enemies. See you next time for the next glass of seawater. Bye.